If you take your Bibles this morning, we'll turn open to the Gospel of Matthew. As we continue our way through it, and this morning, Matthew chapter 23. And you might remember, those of you that were here last week or tuned in last week, we're in Matthew chapter 23 and ended in verse 12. So this morning, we're beginning in verse 13, and we'll go all the way through verse 39 here in Matthew. Matthew 23, verse 13, all the way through 39. If you will, join me in prayer more time before we open the Word together. Our Father, we do pray that You would keep us in a spirit of prayer, even as we hear the Word read and as we hear it preached this morning. May we examine ourselves, may we find that you are examining us, and that there is great delight in coming under the teaching and the instruction and the shaping influence of your word. Work in us, we pray, for your glory and for your praise. In Christ's holy name, amen. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13 through 39. This is the holy, inerrant Word of God. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by this temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shutting the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel 
to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the grass withers. And the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, this is not the easiest of texts. Uh, it is hard. It is heavy. And there's no way around that. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites six times. He calls them blind four times. He compares them to unclean vessels and whitewashed tombs filled with death. He tells them that they are sons of murderers. He calls them serpents. He calls them a brood of vipers. As a preacher, this not my favorite kind of text to preach, but it doesn't make it any less necessary. You, as a listener, this probably isn't your favorite text to hear preached, but it doesn't make it any less necessary. There's much here for us. Before we look at the woes, what I want to do is walk through the woes in this passage, but before we do, let's remind ourselves of why it is that Jesus would speak to these Pharisees in such a way as He is doing here in our text this morning. You'll remember that we saw for a number of weeks that both the Pharisees and the scribes included with the Pharisees and then also the Sadducees, that these two groups were plotting in how to entangle Jesus. And not only were they plotting to entangle Jesus, but now they begin plotting to kill Jesus. You remember the Sadducees, that they didn't believe that there would be a Messiah that came into the world. They weren't looking for the Messiah to come. But the Pharisees, they're on a completely different plane. The Pharisees had great expectations that a Messiah would come into the world. And they were teaching the people to look for the Messiah coming into the world. And here He is right before them, and they refuse to recognize Him. Not only do they refuse to recognize Him, but instead of pointing people to Him, people to Him, they're pointing people away from Him. Here's the Messiah, the one that they've been teaching about and proclaiming and saying that the prophecies spoke about, and He's before their face. And they are concerned with the fact that people are getting ready to follow Him instead of following them. And so they're pointing them away from Jesus and condemning Jesus. And then you see this all in the context of where they're at. They are in the holy city in Jerusalem, the city that the Messiah is to come into. And they're not only in the holy city of Jerusalem, they are in the temple, the very place where God chooses to meet with man. And they are pointing man away from God. And so he issues these woes. He has a righteous anger towards them. These are under-shepherds that are abusing the sheep. When the great shepherd of the sheep has come. I want to look at these seven woes this morning. Some of your Bibles will have an eighth woe. You'll notice if you have an ESV or if you have a NIV Bible before you this morning that there is not a verse 14 in chapter 23. It skips right over, goes from verse 13 to 15. And that's because I, I agree with most scholars that would say that that verse 14 that you might see if you have a King James Bible this morning, uh, that that was not in the original Gospel of Matthew in the original manuscript. And so there are seven woes that we see here. Before we jump into them, what is a woe? Well, you can 
almost hear it in the very word. It, it, it is a whoa. It's, it's an exhalation of, of grief, of sorrow, of, of weightiness, of heaviness. It's even more than that, though. It is also an expression of judgment. Now, not the final judgment. Jesus is warning them here with these woes and tinged or tinctured these woes with a call to repentance. But he is expressing anger here, an anger for seven things. Seven things that he is woeing them, if we can use it as a verb, for. Burdening others, making worse disciples than themselves, creative disobedience, majoring upon the minors, obsession with outward behavior, ignoring the heart, and finally, arrogance. Burdening others, making worse disciples than they are themselves creative disobedience, majoring upon the minors, obsession with outward behavior, ignoring the heart, and then finally arrogance. I want to look at each of these this morning. The first is burdening others. Verses 13 and 15, he pronounces this first woe, this judgment upon them for their shutting the kingdom of heaven in the people's face, Jesus says. He, and for making, then the second woe, their disciples twice as much a child of hell as they themselves are. So those two woes want to tackle together here. How? Well, by burdening others. Burdening others. The Pharisees were the ultimate religious people. They recognized the law of Moses as the very law of God, and that's good. And they desired to uphold every single commandment according to the law of good and uh, law of God, and that is good. They erected entire structure to help safeguard themselves so that they didn't abuse any commandment in the law of God. And that can be good. But the system became so important that breaking one of their rules meant for them that you were breaking one of God's laws. And that is not good. Now, rules can be good. We all institute rules we find helpful for our own spiritual lives. Let's say that I institute a rule in my own life that every morning, no matter the morning, I'm going to rise at 5.30 in the morning. And the reason is because I want to safeguard my life from slothfulness. I want to use my days for the glory of God. I don't want to slumber too much, and so I am going to get up every day, no matter the day, at 5.30 in the morning. That's my rule. It can be a good rule. But you get up at 6.30 every morning, and now... I look at you through my rule, and I question and doubt your holiness and your care about slothfulness because you get up at 6.30 instead of 5.30. And not only do I doubt your holiness in my eyes, but I doubt your holiness in the eyes of God because you get up at 6.30 instead of 5.30. That's a problem. The Pharisees will charge Jesus time and again for not keeping the law, but he was not not keeping the law. He wasn't keeping their rules. He picked grains, uh, heads of grain on the Sabbath and broke one of their rules. He heals a person on the Sabbath day and he breaks one of their rules. But the problem isn't the rules. The rules can be fine. The problem is when the rules define what is holy in our mind. Let me just take something that most of us can agree upon in this room. Historically, if you think back to 1950s to really the 1980s, the height of 
what we call fundamentalism in the evangelical world, there were rules that most evangelicals followed in this country. You don't dance, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with girls that do, right? That's the rules. I think most of us wouldn't say today that something, someone is sinning if they drink. We wouldn't say that someone is sinning if they dance. We wouldn't say someone is sinning if they're smoking. Chewing, maybe. No, not sinning. It's disgusting, though. I can agree about that. You say, how, how could they make those rules as if somebody was sinning? It's so clear. That isn't biblical. But it makes perfect sense when you start to walk through the rationalization. You can hear the conversation. These were Christians looking at their world and saying the great threat in our generation is drunkenness and sexuality, so let's be above reproach. We don't want to offer a bad example to the watching world. Dancing is sexual by nature. Drinking deadens your senses. Why would any Christian want to do that? You can hear the arguments. And then comes the rules. Again, the rules can be fine, but they aren't fine once they become the requirement for my holiness before God or others' holiness before God or others' holiness before me. Then it's a problem. Be careful. Be careful developing your own system of rules. What holiness looks like, and even more so applying that system to someone or, supply, or applying that to everyone else. God determines what is holy, not us, God. The Pharisees were claiming to help people to heaven when they were, in fact, shutting the door of heaven in people's faces. And this is the very definition of hypocrisy. Follow our way, and the way is open to you. And by following that way, they are in fact leading the people away from the way. So his anger is kindled. They burdened others. They not only burden others, that second woe is pronounced because they make people worse than they themselves are. And it's almost always that way when a system is foisted upon people as if this is the standard for holiness, this is the way to God. The second generation is almost always worse than the first generation. Because where it was one degree off, now we are 15 miles down the road and we are 10 degrees off. I told you this last week, remind you again, all those that say, follow me, to you are not worth following. All those that want you to follow them are not worth following. The greatest threat to the church in every generation is not from without, it's from within. Be careful who you are looking up to and who you are looking around at. It's not those who profess to hate Christ, but those who profess to love Christ but don't who do the greatest harm. It's not the lions from without that devour the most sheep. It is the wolves within that devour the most sheep. If those you look up to or you look around to as your friends who influence you are continually pointing you to other things than to Christ, even spiritual things, then they're pointing you away from Christ. The Messiah has come. And they, they couldn't recognize it. They couldn't see it. 
because they had been burdened with another system of holiness. Before we go on to the next one, I, I want to make clear though, I, I think when we think about hypocrisy, you and I often think about those who are intentionally hypocritic. That is that we think of those that, you think of the, the wealth and health gospel preachers, and you think of those that are getting something from the fact that they are hypocrites and they're living this way. They get that wealth or they get that position or they get that prestige or they get that honor. And so they are intentionally hypocrites. But they aren't the most dangerous. The most dangerous are the unintentional hypocrites. Those that are so blinded the Pharisees are unintentional hypocrites. They're committed to their religion, their religion of fasting and tithing and Sabbath-keeping and praying. They are just blind to their own waywardness. And they're the most dangerous. They are always the most burdensome to others. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from the burdens of others that they seek to put on you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, He says, and I will give you rest. That is the way. The other is not. Second or third. Jesus condemns them for their creative disobedience in verses 16 through 22. He pronounces woe for their swearing by the gold of the temple or swearing by the sacrifice that was on the altar rather than the temple itself or rather than by the altar. And they thought that somehow that they were freed up from an oath that was given because they swore by the gold of the temple rather than the temple, or they swore by the sacrifice on the altar rather than the altar itself. They are leading people astray. As if it somehow safeguarded them from a binding oath. This is just kind of a religious gymnastics. It is creative disobedience when they are in fact encouraging lying. When Ananias and Sapphira go into the church and acts there and they are struck dead by God at the apostles' feet, it's not because they didn't give all that they could give. It's because they lied about their giving. Lying is not a small thing to God. Sin. And the Pharisees are encouraging lying by the very thing that was supposed to reinforce someone's trustworthiness. They turn oaths into a mechanism that allows someone to actually lie. Again, the Pharisees are not intentionally trying to do so. They're trying to define what is an actual oath. So that we know when we've made a true oath and we can hold to it. And, and over here we can say, well, you know what? That wasn't really an oath. They're, they're trying to define it and put it in categories. But by attempting to define the very thing, they've undone the very thing they're trying to define. And they lead people astray. I didn't really take an oath here or there. I swore by the gold and not by the temple itself. That's just creative disobedience. That's just religious gymnastics. Before we get too judgmental of the Pharisees and ready to jump on them, this is so easy and we do this. It wasn't really gossip. I was sharing so others could pray with me. I wasn't really complaining. I was seeking godly counsel from friends. I wasn't really dishonoring. I was standing for truth. I wasn't really being unloving. I was simply being honest. Now, all these things can be true, but too often they are untrue. Just religious gymnastics. Just creative disobedience. 
just a way for me to justify my own dishonoring. We want to be above reproach. We want to be above reproach. So we want to examine our lives to see whether we are playing the holy actor when we are doing nothing more than attempting to disguise our sin. The fourth woe in verses 23 through 24 is directed at them for majoring upon the minor while missing the minor, or the major. Jesus says that they tithe dill and they tithe cumin and they tithe mint. They are fastidious about tithing. Even the smallest of herbs and the smallest of spices they will tithe. In fact, the Pharisees were renowned at this time for debating this. They are debating how far down must we tithe and, and they settle upon it. We must tithe down to the very of smallest of things. It became essential to their system. The law is important, and the law said we are to tithe. And so what do we tithe? Well, we create a whole system by which now we understand that this is what it looks like to tithe in every way. Yet Jesus says this. He says they have, quote, neglected the weightier matters of the law. In particular, he says they have neglected, quote, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus is here summarizing Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. If you look down to verse 28, Jesus inserts a, a word that I find fascinating in the context. He's called them hypocrites over and over and over. And then in verse 28, he adds something with the hypocrites. He calls them not only hypocrites, he says that they are lawless. Now that, that should blow your mind. Lawless? These are Pharisees. Their entire life is about the law. They are law-abiding people. Everything they do is consumed with the law. And Jesus says they're lawless. Why? Because they miss the greatest demand of the law. Love. And so though you do, you do not in fact do, Jesus is saying. Calvin summarizes Jesus here by saying, Briefly then, the sum of the law comes back to love. Christ typically refers the real test of sanctity, that is holiness, to brotherly love. The Pharisees were committed to the absolute smallest of matters, and yet they were missing the largest of matters. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus will summarize the entire law with one word, love. There's so many who believe they are doing so much for God when in fact they are doing so much against God because there is no love. They major upon the minor and they miss the major. Imagine a woman that is concerned with table etiquette, all right? Uh, in my family, that was my grandma, very concerned about table etiquette. Uh, I sat through many a lessons on table etiquette. Everyone knows that the fork goes on the left side of the plate, the spoon goes on the right side of the plate, and it goes on the outside of the knife, which is pointed in. This is... Right table etiquette. Imagine that person, maybe it's your grandma, is sitting across the table from you and is correcting you because you have it mixed up. The fork doesn't go on the right side. The fork goes on the left side. And the knife, you have it pointed out. Everyone knows that it points in. This is for safety. And all the while that she is telling you this, she has mashed potatoes and she is smearing it all over her face. 
And as she is explaining to you that you need to swap the two, you are seeing these globs of mashed potatoes just fall off her cheeks. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees regarding both the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath, eating on the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. His response is the greater principle. God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I can say without qualification, every time a movement within the church begins to get off track, every heretical sect that has emerged in the church, every time some denomination or church splits over the non-essentials, the issue is that the minor issue was made a major issue. Every time. What a picturesque illustration Jesus gives us of this here. And he says it's like straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. As people, you and I, we have this constant temptation to be hyper-focused. I get hyper-focused about what I am passionate about. Hyper-focused about what concerns me, worries me, what threatens me. And usually there's a cause. The appeal or the concern is even right. But it just gets out of whack. Pharisees were concerned about tithing in a way that honors God. You, you, you can imagine the dialogue that is happening among the Pharisees in their community of faith. Let us not allow anything to escape our giving to God. If we give in the small things, we will give in the big things. Isn't God worth our tithing, even the smallest of things? Or does our love of God only extend to the big things? This makes logical sense. You can hear the arguments. And they become hyper-focused. And then it consumes. And then we care too much about this thing, or this group of things, or this concern, and it pushes the most important thing out the door. But this is important. It always is. It always is. But not the cost of the more important. Notice Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You ought to have been concerning yourself with the weightier matters of the law. That doesn't mean that you don't tithe. That doesn't mean that you don't worry about tithing. But it does mean that you focus upon what you're supposed to be focused upon. You've wrongly assessed what is most important, he is saying to them. Even now, I, I want you and I to think about this. I want you to think about it yourself, for yourself, not others. I want you to think about yourself. I think about myself right now, not others. If we can't personally apply this in our present circumstances with the present conversations that are occurring in our midst, then maybe we're just blind. If I can't personally apply this. We each need to look in the mirror, and we might just find that as we're looking in that mirror, that you know what? I got mashed potatoes on my cheek. And I got a camel hanging out of my mouth. Fifth woe, verses 25 and 26. It's due to their obsession with outward behavior. 
They clean the outside of the cup, Jesus says, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They look the part, but they are disgusting within. Like we have all been there. You're sitting at the breakfast table in the morning and you are oh, getting down to that great part, those last bites of those honey nut Cheerios at the bottom of the bowl. And someone walks in and says, did someone run the dishwasher last night? And then the question, did you get your bowl and spoon out of the dishwasher? And your stomach just does a flip-flop. The scenario Jesus is painting is even more graphic here. It's that you're sitting down at someone's table and they have given you a bowl that looks good on the outside and on the inside. It's not just the night's crumbs left over. It is weeks upon weeks of residue of what they have eaten in the inside of that bowl. And they have put a bowl of soup in the middle of the table and they said, it's here. Put some soup in your bowl. Let's eat. It's meant to turn your stomach. This is disgusting. Jesus is disgusted. You look good on the outside. But inside, you're a mess. Jesus says, clean the inside of the cup and the plate first. God works from within out. When the inside is clean, the outside will shine forth the cleanness. So we're to be concerned not so much with what others see on the outside primarily, but rather what we see being reformed on the inside, what we see within that then manifests itself outwardly. Within first... The outward will follow. Which quickly leads to the next woe in verses 27 and 28, ignoring the heart. He again calls them hypocrites. He compares them to whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful, and yet inwardly they are full of death. And the imagery is this, is that in Jerusalem at this time, you would have had these limestone tombs. And especially at the time of Passover when the pilgrims were headed into Jerusalem, before they got there, the Jews in Jerusalem would whitewash all of these tombs. And they would whitewash them so that they stood out because there was danger. The pilgrims are coming into the city. And if the pilgrims were to touch any of these graves, not knowing them to be graves, they would become unclean. And then the whole pilgrimage would be all for naught. And so they would whitewash the tombs. And they would gleam white. They would look beautiful. They appeared to have life. But everyone knew that they contained death. Just saying these Pharisees, they... Look good on the outside, and yet they are dead on the inside. They look clean, but they are in fact very unclean. And this is true of everyone apart from Jesus. They are so fastidious. They are so committed to their outward obedience, thinking that somehow that will make them holy and clean before God, and they are dead and dark inside. And the thing that they needed, the only thing that they needed was right before them, just to receive Jesus. Just to receive Jesus. They would have been clean. Paul says, of all of us, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We are all walking around with living death. 
until we receive Jesus. And then there's life. And then there's light. God knows, you know, He looks upon the heart. Are you alive within? You can fool me. You can fool those around you. You can't fool Him. Are you alive within? It's like, why? Why? It's right there for the taking. Why? They're looking for the Messiah. They know the prophecies. He's there. Why? Why don't they just receive Him? And the answer is the last woe. It's their arrogance. Verses 29 through 36. Again, Jesus calls them hypocrites. They are blinded by pride, He says. They boast that if they had lived at the time of the prophets and their forefathers had killed these prophets, that they themselves would have not killed these prophets. They would have received the Word of God. They would have received these messengers from God. They know it of themselves. And Jesus says, you testify against yourselves. How? Why? Because they're not receiving the prophet that's before them. And not just a prophet, but the prophet. It's arrogance. It's pride. And they only are not receiving him. They're plotting to kill him. And so Jesus says to them, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. This is language that is to remind you and I of the Old Testament Scriptures when God said that He would bring the nation of Israel back into the land and He would judge the land, the peoples in the land, when the iniquity of the Amorites had reached its full. And that's what He's saying here. God is patient with sin for a time. But only for a time. There's a measure of fullness that occurs and He pours out His wrath and Jesus promises it here. He says it's coming upon this generation. But notice that when He says that, He doesn't say that with delight. There is a, a compassion and a mercy that, that tinctures even those woes as He continues. And I want you to see that. So lastly, notice the compassion of Christ here. He is angry with these Pharisees. He's incensed with them, and rightfully so. They are the teachers of the people of God. They are the religious leaders. They are to be pointing people to Him. They are to be honoring God, and in fact, they are damning people by their teaching. They don't show compassion for those people. They don't show mercy to those people, but Jesus does. Immediately see the contrast between him and them. All these woes he pronounces are tinctured with compassion. He, he looks over the city, the city of David, the city of kings, the city that the Messiah was to come into, the holy city, the place where God meets with man. And he weeps. He weeps. All their privilege. All that they should have recognized. And he weeps. Because they don't come to him. And he knows that judgment is going to come upon them. Told in Matthew 9 that he had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless. That you and I would have pity for the lost like Jesus does. 
we would have compassion for the hurting like Jesus does. We would know such a Savior and run to Him. He calls us to come. That's why I began the service with Jesus saying to you, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He calls you to come and to find rest under Him. There's safety under Him. He uses this beautiful illustration of a mother hen gathering her chicks underneath her wings. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I desired to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. We have multiple examples people will point to where when a hen house catches fire or a barnyard catches fire, that there have been moments where these mother hens will gather together chicks underneath their wings. And they will shield them from the fire that is coming down upon them. And that mother hen will shelter them and sit upon them and take all of that fire upon herself. When Jesus hangs upon that cross, He reaches out His wings. He says, there is shadow under my wings. It's the safest place to be. Because the wrath is coming. It's the only place to be. He takes it upon himself. So that we don't experience that loss and that death and that suffering. So have you come? Why wouldn't you come? Jesus looks over the city. He longs to gather it. But he says that they are unwilling. This people refuses him, and so he'll forsake them. And so, as we know in history, in A.D. 70, within 30 years of his death, The Roman army will march into Jerusalem and it will make the city desolate as Jesus prophesies here. And this temple that they are standing in will be torn down. But they could have come. Why wouldn't we come to Him? Maybe you think this whole passage in context, you think, as J.C. Ryle was commenting upon this passage, you said some look at this and they say, you know, it is the safest path in religion is not actually to profess because if you do, you may be one of these hypocrites. You think, so no one wants to be a hypocrite. None of us want to be a hypocrite. And so it's better not to profess Christ as Lord and Savior and be a hypocrite. As Ryle said, it does not follow that all money is bad because there is much counterfeit money. There are many hypocrites. But it would be an awful, awful decision not to profess Jesus as Savior and Lord because of the hypocrites out there. That would be an awful error. An awful eternal error. Let's make it clear there are plenty of hypocrites. But those of us that have truly professed Christ, we're not hypocrites. We're inconsistent. I'm inconsistent. I inconsistently love Christ well. I inconsistently walk in faithfulness well. And that is true of every single one of you out there that profess Christ. But that doesn't make you a hypocrite. It's a vast difference. I'm saved by grace and I continue in grace because I'm in constant need of grace. 
I'm inconsistent. We're in need of His covering wings now and for all of eternity. None of us rely upon having a perfect faith, but rather having faith in a perfect Savior. And when you are under the shadow of His wings, when you have come to Him, when you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, when you have committed yourself to Him and received that grace by faith alone, you're covered over by His wings. And that loss and that sorrow and that death and that wrath is borne by Him. What keeps you? Do you know yourself to be in Christ today? Do you know yourself to be in Christ today? If you do, you will forever know peace under the shadow of His wings. Let's pray. Father, how we desire to give you glory and honor and praise. If there are any of us that are hypocrites in this room, we pray that you would convict us, that we might turn in repentance. For those of us that are inconsistent, we pray that you would continually pour out your grace upon us in Christ, that we might love him more fully and walk according to him more regularly. For those of us that are holding back, you show us even this day that we are dead within. And we are a truly living death. That there is only one place of refuge in the gathering storm. May we all, every single one of us, man, woman, and child, in this room and on this live stream and in the fellowship hall, find on that last day that truly Christ's wings are, shed, are framed over us and that we forever know peace. Oh. We pray that in the strong name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.